From London to Lisbon, from Cape Town to Charleston, we tell the stories of the people that make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experiences. These accounts come from every sector in every industry around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal, the show where practice meets personality. I am your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Before we get into it, I have a small favor to ask. If you haven't already, please take a moment and do one of the following. One, like and share the posting on LinkedIn. That's right, where 90% of you see the notification for this show, take a moment to like, share, and or comment. Two, leave a review or five-star rating on your podcasting platform of choice. Or number three, just tell a friend about the show. These activities really help the show out and help others find the show. So we at the TOT team would greatly appreciate it if you could take 30 seconds to do one or all of the above. All right, let's jump into it. This week's episode takes us to the home of companies like Apple, Facebook, Google, Tesla, where big ideas are imagined and innovation thrives. I'm talking, of course, about Silicon Valley, and in particular, the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center's Young Practitioners Group. This week, I had a chance to sit down with members of their executive leadership, David Ernst, Amy Endicott, and Claire Morelda Westgaver, about the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center, all the things that they've got going on in the Young Practitioners Group, and tech, and how tech is shaping the evolution of international dispute resolution. This was a new TOT record where we had three interviewees and just one me. It was a fun and interesting interview and I hope you will take a lot out of it. So power up your PC or Mac, sit back and enjoy my conversation with the S-V-A-N-C-Y-P and we'll see you on the other side of the show. And welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. So, listeners, let me ask you a question. Did you think, did you have the idea that last week's episode, the two-parter, where we had two guests on the show, was all that we were going to be doing in a way of having multiple guests? Well, I'm here to tell you we have one-upped ourselves. We have added three new guests for this week's episode. That's right. We have from the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center, Young Division, Mr. David Ernst, Amy Endicott, and Claire Morel de Westreva. Now, um, as I get ready to introduce each one of them to you, so David, say hey. Hey, Chris. Hey, good to have you. And Amy, welcome. Hi there. Claire. Hello, Chris. (laughs) Well, good. And thank you all for being here uh, with me today. Um, so, as I just said in the, the intro, um, you're, you're on behalf of a, an interesting organization, and we'll talk about that a lot in the second half. But before we get into that, there are people behind each of those names that we just introduced. So, um, we'll go in a similar round-robin sort of fashion, um, and we'll ask these questions. Who are you? Where are you from? 
What do the people need to know? And Dave, we're going to start with you. Chris, thanks very much. First off, for having me on the show. Um, a long-time listener, but now I'm glad to be able to take part. Um, so who am I? Uh, well, I am a lawyer with uh, the Sherman and Sterling's uh, International Arbitration Group. I'm based in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've been here and with Sherman for whew, a little bit over six years. Um, prior to that, um, I was very fortunate to be able to practice uh, international arbitration uh, with Hogan Lovells in London uh, for just over five. Uh, was in Belgium and Brussels, uh, Hanusha and Vanden. Uh, so I've, I've had quite a diverse geographic practice a couple of years, but originally I'm, I'm from Arizona in the U.S. So I'm, I'm slowly making my, after going east for a number of years, I'm slowly making my way back west. Well, sure. And uh, where, where'd you go to law school? Law school at uh, Pace University. It's up in Westchester. Originally went there for international trade. I, after I went, I went to undergrad in the University of Arizona and, and really had a good opportunity studying and working in Latin America. I thought I was going to do, be an international trade lawyer and was, was attracted to going to a law school that had a focus on that. And I think as many people find out when they go to law school, the reasons why they're going aren't necessarily what they end up practicing. Um, I kept the word international in my practice, but I, I moved away from trade disputes. So I've really, you know, it's been quite a good marriage to practice two of my different passions. My uh, passion for being an advocate and a litigator, but also being able to practice international law in a, um, quite a diverse field. And so uh, with that, we'll, uh, we'll turn to Amy. Uh, I'm based in San Francisco, California, but it wasn't always that way. I'm with Arnold and Porter. And we have offices in D.C. and New York and around the world as well. So I started um, in the Washington, D.C. office. I was there for three years, uh, earning my stripes and getting to know international arbitration from the home of Ix. And then I moved home to the West Coast to... Yeah, definitely. You know, it's interesting when I was a summer associate initially interviewing out on the West Coast, I got a lot of questions when I said, I want to do international dispute resolution. People said, well, what is that really all about? People don't really do that here. And I'm happy to report now, 10 years later, that it very much is part of the practice on the West Coast. And I think that's in part due to the really dedicated group of practitioners out here um, who have worked to bring awareness and even to change the law. Claire, similarly, what, 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 where are you from? Where do the people need to know? Tell us. Thanks, Chris. Um, so I'm, I'm Claire Morell, and I'm based uh, in London. Um, uh, I work at BCLP, Brian Kivit and Pesner, in the international arbitration team. Uh, I'm originally from Belgium, uh, and I've been based in London for 13 years. Uh, before that, um, I was in the States, uh, where I did my LLM at Northwestern University. Um, that was around 15 years ago. Um, and before that, I was uh, doing my law degree in Belgium, which is five years, and this is during this time that I uh, got to know international arbitration and decided to to uh, have a career in that field. Um, I, I figured that would be a, a field that would allow me to, um, you know, practice my passion, but also travel and, and effectively um, practice law abroad, which is not a given uh, when you're a lawyer. And um, so I, I did that, um, that law degree, went to the States to do my LLM in Chicago. After my LLM, I sat uh, on the New York bar. So I qualified in New York and then started in London 13 years ago at Bird and Bird, um, uh, a British firm 
which is actually a tech firm. I so I spent seven years there, did a lot of uh, arbitration involving technology, and then I moved to Brown Cave um, then um, in 2014, um, and then Brown Cave became BCLP um, in 2018 when it merged with um, BLP. Well, no, and that that sounds like uh, you know your own sort of. Um little bit of a back and forth, you know, from, from Brussels to, to then London and now uh, finding yourself um, in, in, the, in the practice of, of law um, in this regard. So, and, and, I, and all of you have brought up a number of issues that we'll, we'll certainly want to dig into a little bit um, in, in this current portion, but also in the second half. Um, so let's, let's rewind for a second before we go a little bit deeper into, uh, into the organization. Um, David, Having worked in Washington, D.C. and in London and in Brussels, you know, shout out to, to Claire Morell as well there. Uh, did you notice any stark differences in the conduct of arbitral proceedings in these jurisdictions? <laughs> yes, that's, that's, that's a simple answer. Um, look, international arbitration, I think we, as a community, we try and sort of Creates and sort of homogenize ourselves to some degree. We all, all all sort of see ourselves as internationalists. We all like you know try to speak different languages and are interested in traveling the world and like to practice international law. And I, I think there is sort of that you know common thread between people that practice international arbitration is really their main you know sort of practice. But at the end of the day, I mean, as anybody will tell you, you know, law is necessarily sort of tethered to where where you are. You know, whether that's the training or whether it's the legal culture there, whether it's just the general culture. Um, so you, you do find stark differences. I mean, I, I think when I moved to London, um, you know, I had to really learn how to be an English lawyer. Even though I was doing international arbitration and I had, you know, cases throughout all over the world and, and, you know, exotic places, I, you know, A, I had to get qualified as an English lawyer, which was, you know, a really big uh, feather in my cap. But. I was glad to get, but yes, I had to learn how to be an English lawyer, just how to write like an English lawyer. And, you know, likewise, when I moved to the U.S., um, it was a bit of a culture shock because uh, American lawyers are different, right? Uh, they're a bit more boisterous, uh, a bit more aggressive, at least, uh, you know, on, on the outside. Uh, and you, and, and this, this all, I think, really plays in to international arbitration and being able to sort of adapt yourself to not only the parties and your client, your client, but also the tribunal. Um, you know, one of the greatest attributes I think you can get in practice of this particular in this field is being able to adapt to different cultures, because they are so there are such stark differences. And you know, some of those differences are, you know, very atypical ones you'd think um, about sort of cultures generally. But there's also a lot of subtle differences that you, if you if you can master your way to sort of pick up on those. Um, you'll do a lot better, you know, not only in your advocacy, but also your relationships. Well, sure. And I mean, I think you, you make a, a good point. I think anyone, whether it's uh, just the, you know, the next uh, country over, if you're in Europe or, you know, um, you know, different parts of the United States can appreciate the different uh, styles at, to, as to advocacy. Um, what were some of the things that you did in order to kind of pick up on some of those things when you transferred from um, a different jurisdiction um, like uh, like Brussels back to the United States. Actually, I went I went from Brussels to London, um, and I I'd studied uh, in sorry. London, and I, and I thought you know I, I knew what I was doing, but I got there and 
I actually joined Levels when it was just Levels. It wasn't even Hogan Levels yet. I think I was the only American in the in the arbitration department. And I had to learn how to write correctly. I'm going to see you that way. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I had to learn sort of the subtleties of, you know, of, of not sort of, Americans have a tendency, I always say, to sort of fill the void in a conversation, right? You don't want silence. But I think the, the English and a lot of other cultures are okay with that silence. It's actually part of the conversation. You have to learn, and, you know, and that arises also when you're, you know, pleading a case to a tribunal. You have to know when to continue to talk or when to, when to stop. Um, you know, then I, when I moved to the U.S. from London, I remember one of the first tribunals I had, one of the, the wings was highly partisan, um, you know, completely, you could tell he was on the side of, of the party that nominated him. And to me, I had not come across that yet in Belgium, and I had not come across that in any of my practice. And a lot of my American colleagues didn't seem too put off by it. They kind of expected it. And I, it was sort of, I really struggled with that for the first year, thinking we should challenge this guy. and. Um, we didn't eventually challenge him, but you know, I, I think he, I think he was a good advocate for his client, even though he was on the tribunal. There, I was just trying out the letting some silence sit there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I didn't like that. <laughs> Maybe not the right forum for that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. Um, no, that 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 that's insightful. Um, you know, you mentioned your time in London. Uh, or, you know, do you think that, you know, your second myth, uh, you know, as legal counsel to an arbitral institution um, like the LCIA, which, um, you know, shout out to them as well, you know, with their uh, new rules going effective October 1st, do you think that that added value to your practice as a lawyer in the international arbitration teams of uh, various law firms? Yeah, hands down. I mean, I have to thank Hogan Lovells for giving me that opportunity to sort of spend six months in the LCIA uh, for, as being a counsel within their, you know, their case team. Because look, the law in my view is it's an apprenticeship profession and the more you can expose yourself to the better and what better place for an arbitration practitioner to be sitting in the trenches of an arbitral institution like the LCIA and really getting to see, you know, for, for lack of a better way to put it, how the sausage is made. You know, how, how do tribunals get chosen by, by the LCIA court? How are case managers, you know, handling the cases? What, what really goes on behind the scenes? And, you know, what, what it teaches you, I think, is, is to really, A, respect, you know, the institutions and how hard they work, and particularly the, the, the case managers and the council. I mean, these, I think at the time there, people would be managing upwards of 50 or 60 or more cases, um, you know, and they have to keep them all organized, understand where they are, who are the players, and someone calls, you know, upset about something and it just gives you a random case number, um, you know, you'd have to be on top of it. So not only the, the exposure and getting to see how things work, but also really getting an appreciation for, you know, really what a valuable role these institutions play. I do it, I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. And I, I've, I'll tell you, I've counseled a lot of you know, law students have come to me and said, "How do I? What do I do to get into this field?" And I say, "Look, if you're not going to go work for a firm, go work for an institution, any institution, because there, there is value there. And you know, also one of the great values is is you get to know people and network. So um, if you're interested in that, it's a, it's a great place." Well, I think that's well said, David. I think that you know, oftentimes, <laughs> what you will see too often, and maybe we all have a story like this, right, where 
Um, we'll get an email from a, a Moody that has just big, finished the Vise moot, and they're like, ah, okay, I'm ready to sit as counsel in an arbitration, or you know, how do I start getting appointed as an arbitrator? And you're like, oh, whoa, time out, time out. <laughs> have you passed the bar? You know, have you worked any cases yet? Um, are, are some of the questions that, that might come up. And I, I think that's well said that, you know, things like working at an institution, um, writing, working under as an apprentice with folks in the field, I think that's all um, invaluable opportunities to, to really kind of learn the trade before you start getting your hands dirty and um, really can get to work and uh, developing your practice and your reputation. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I mean, look, I think when you're just starting out, you, you want to hit the ground running and you know, the world is yours. And, and that's a great attitude. But I think the one thing is you do this for a while is you realize the more the more you you know learn the more you realize you don't know things and you've got you know room to improve and um look and if you can if you can surround yourself with good opportunities and good people um you know you'll, you'll help your chances of success greatly no I, I think that's right i think that's right um and uh that's a great perspective to have um amy a question for you you recently wrote about legis a legislative change in California, which necessitates that greater diversity um, on boards on the boards of public companies, right? And what role can young lawyers have? Speaking of young lawyers, can play in ensuring greater diversity in law firms. And of course, that sort of is the context around a lot of the conversations that have been had um, over the past, you know, decade plus, and especially this year, you know, about what diversity means and and what that looks like to increase in public boards in the international arbitration context. Yeah, so I think um, it, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out that this legislation that's being passed in California, this started with an initiative uh, in 2018, SB 826, which mandated that publicly traded companies headquartered in California add at least one woman to their board. Um, and then this year, partly in light of the civil unrest that we're seeing here in the United States, the California legislature uh, put forward another bill, ABA 979, this time mandating that publicly traded companies headquartered in California also include a director from an underrepresented community by the end of 2021. And they defined underrepresented community broadly to include people who self-identified from a variety of ethnic and racial backgrounds and also to address people's sexual orientation and gender identity. And so I think that's a, a great step forward. And one thing that I think is really telling, at least insofar as we've seen the effect of SB 826, which is the gender diversity initiative, is that companies overwhelmingly have voluntarily complied. Uh, you know, and these bills got a lot of backlash for being mandates, but what they we hope they will do and what the gender diversity bill has done in effect is to inspire voluntary compliance. And I think that's an important lesson when you're looking in general at diversity initiatives. You know, a lot of these leading arbitral institutions have put forward diversity goals. And I think it's on us as practitioners and law firms and in the field to really bring that forward, to really make it an affirmative part of what we're doing. Um, and international arbitration in particular presents these amazing opportunities because we are a diverse group of people working across different cultures, uh, working with people from different backgrounds, different countries who speak different languages. And so I think there's a real opportunity here. But to get to your question about what we as lawyers at big law firms can do, I think there's a lot we can do, even as young practitioners. I think there's a lot we can do to lift people up and to bring issues forward. And I think 
at least at Arnold and Porter, I feel very fortunate that our leadership is attentive to this issue. They're listening and they're soliciting suggestions from everybody. But, you know, I think probably what's most helpful is to get a little more concrete. So what can you do as an associate at a big law firm to be part of this change? Um, partly, I think it starts within the firm. Um, so I think when you are on a conference call and you have maybe a more junior team member who may not be given as much airtime for whatever reason, you can make sure that their ideas get put forward, that they get credited for those ideas, and that they're given time and space to speak. I think that helps bring people to the forefront of leadership's attention and really gives them a voice in the discussion. Uh, I know all of us as practitioners in the arbitration space, you were just mentioning earlier, <laughs> Chris, that you get notes from Moody's. Um, I think we should respond to those notes. There are many conferences that I've gone to and spoken at, and I have people from lots of diverse backgrounds, whether they're coming for to do an LLM from South Asia or from East Asia, or they're there writing you know, a thesis paper and they're from Venezuela. People have questions, and I think it's incumbent on us to really answer and engage and to follow up with those students to make sure that they feel like they didn't just get kind of the back of the hand, but if they want to sit down and talk about where they can go and what they can do, that we help them. Um, and so I think that's, that's really an important and concrete way that we can move this forward. And the other thing I would say is that as an associate in a law firm setting, you're often asked to put forward recommendations, but maybe that's for an arbitrator or maybe that's for local counsel and you're doing this research. And I think, it's also incumbent on us to expand the field of who we look at to make sure that our recommendations are diverse and are inclusive so that those names are getting put in front of the decision makers and the clients, whether you yourself are making that decision or someone that you're working with. I think that's all well said, um, Amy. I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, one of the early things that you said, um, requirements um, you know, we got to consider, especially in the United States context, you know, integration didn't happen voluntarily. Um, Title IX and equal distribution of resources for college athletics, um, that wouldn't have happened without some sort of uh, compulsory requirements um, from, from the governing institutions. And, and what I take away from that uh, is that there's a level of intentionality and engagement, right? And so then the question that, that I have is if you could wave a wand and accomplish one thing to advance diversity, whether it be in the gender, ethnic um, discussion or culture, what would that thing be if you have one in mind? That's a really good question. I, I don't have a wand. I wish I did. <laughs> and I wish I could uh, do more than one thing. But if I were looking just in, in my field in general, I would like to include, let me just step back a minute. There are a lot of arbitrations I've been involved in where all the witnesses are white men, all the arbitrators are white men, and all of the lead counsel are white men. And I would love to be able to wave a wand over that hearing room and just instantly change the composition of that room. Because I think one thing that the research backing these initiatives in California has really shown and kind of proved up to the skeptics wherever they are is that there's a real value to this. It's not just a, a social duty that we have to make sure that people are getting a voice and are in the room and are getting a slice of, of the pie, but also that there's a value that that brings, a, a tangible benefit to diversity. And so I think everybody would 
do better if we could see that change. But unfortunately, we don't have a magic wand. And that's why I think it's so important that we work, even when we're younger, or even when we are not the ultimate decision maker in the room, to find opportunities and to encourage people to seek out those opportunities. Because there's so many times that young practitioners are told, this is a competitive field, you, know, you need to have a certain level of fluency, whether that's cultural or linguistic, and it's going to be really tough for you. And while that may be part of life, I think it's incumbent on us to, to try and change that message and say, if, if you want to find it, there's a space for you here and let me help you get there. Sure. Um, and, you know, the, the, the sort of last thing I would throw on there is something that uh, I think has been more recently coming to the forefront or been talked about more, we'll say, is the sort of socioeconomic barriers that exist. Um, you know, if you're selling folks, OK, well, if you want to to, to have a, an opportunity to move up or to get, you know, asked to write on the co-author of publication or to be appointed as arbitrator, you got to go to these conferences or you got to get this training. Well, OK, I've just graduated law school and that costs five thousand dollars or conference attendance is conference attendance is a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars i mean those are things that are just frankly out of reach it sets up a, a de facto if not actual barrier for folks to be able to advance yeah and here's what you know people don't tell you and again this is like a just a lack of access to kind of the cultural knowledge around arbitration is that there are organizations where if you write in and you say i'm so interested in your conference i would love to come and be a special rapporteur um, you know, it's not in my city, but, I, but I'd really like to go. Um, and so it's going to be expensive for me to travel. And I see there's this fee, you know, there's lots to be said for asking. And I feel like people aren't even told how to go about doing that. Um, I also think you're increasingly seeing more student rates um, and more offers. I think that's great. Uh, the pandemic is also presenting an interesting opportunity, which is you no longer have, you know, the flight <laughs> the hotel costs, the meals out, the taxi or Uber or Lyft to where you're going. So it's right now is a great time to try and get into that web content. Um, but I would definitely encourage people to like message organizers and explain the situation. And I think that now in particular, people may be more receptive to those concerns. But you're right, it, it continues to be a problem. You know, it is a, an expensive world and, uh, you know, those conferences can be thousands of dollars and that definitely limits access. Well, sure. And, you know, speaking, you know, staying with, with the young lawyer theme there for just a second, um, you, Amy, were actually selected as one of the arbitration future leaders by Who's Who Legal in 2020. First of all, snaps for that. Um, <laughs> but what advice would you give to younger lawyers who are looking to build a career in international arbitration and dispute resolution? I would say follow your passion and persevere. Like I said at the beginning of the end, when I wanted this job, I was this person from Berkeley who was out here on the West Coast and people looked at me funny when I got to DC. I was one of the only people from UC Berkeley in that area trying to practice in that field. Um, and I think you just have to really drive for what you want and you need to recognize, which can be hard as a young lawyer, that if you ask for help, there are a lot of people who will want to help you. People generally like helping people. So if you message that conference organizer, or if you talk to that partner, or if you reach out to that person who's a third level connection on LinkedIn, and you can speak clearly and passionately about what you want to do, 
then I think you will find that that can open doors for you that you may have thought would be shut. I also think there's a lot we can do, especially now in the internet age. <laughs> I sound like an old person when I say the internet age, but <laughs> to build your profile in very kind of low cost ways. There are uh, message boards you can join, blog forums. There are always places where you can volunteer to, to write an article or a short piece and shop it around. And I also think David's advice earlier is a good one. You know, if the law firm route seems to be a little bit difficult at the present time, then see what you can do with an institution or even with a publication. Because um, there are lots of different paths to this. I think that's what you've probably found, Chris, I'm sure, interviewing lots and lots of people about their careers. But I think you just have to believe in yourself and, and really try and look for those opportunities wherever they may arrive. I think that's well said. I, I, I don't have anything to add. I think that that was a, a, a great answer. Um, you know, I will pivot here just a little bit um, and, and toss this next question to, to Claire, actually. Claire, in your opinion, how can AI revolutionize international arbitration in the coming year? So I, I think it, it's, uh, it's going to have an impact. It's a uh... It's difficult to say when and, and, and how exactly, but um, what I've been writing about is, is actually a technology um, that is already in use in arbitration, um, but um, kind of in the background and very little is said about, about that. There's no guidance um, out there as to whether the, the parties need to disclose the use of, of, uh, of that tool. And I'm talking about predictive, predictive coding. Um, so with predictive coding, um, documents that are responsive to a request for documents are not identified um, by um, either search terms or date ranges or just manual review. They are identified by an algorithm. Of course, there's some in human inputs to that algorithm. So the, the documents are a set of documents is reviewed by a lawyer, and then on on, on the basis of the the, co the coding. Um, uh, that uh, that lawyer will apply to, to that uh, in, in, uh, as part of that initial review. The algorithm will become more and more uh, precise, and when it gets to a, a, a satisfactory, satisfactory level of, of precision, uh, it is applied to to the rest of the documents. Um, it's uh, it's what's interesting with with document of, of course predictive coding is is uh, as um, can bring uh, uh, many advantages, but one of them is, of course, cost and time. Um, a, a third one, which is a bit less to talked about, is, is the, um, the quantification of, of, um, of errors. Um, so with what manual reviews or even search terms or, or date ranges, uh, there is no way to uh, measure human, human mistakes. Um, and we all know that in, in, in big document production exercises in arbitration, there's sometimes an army of, 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 of lawyers and paralegals, you know, reviewing those documents where sometimes it, there, there is some, something to say about the lack of, 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 of consistency. Um, so arguably, uh, uh, predictive coding can, can, can fix that problem. And uh, of course, it, the documents are identified by the, an algorithm. Uh, but there is there are some checks that can be made, and the al algorithm will will the tool will will tell 
how precise the algorithm is. And so there is something interesting that we don't have yet, which is this, this, the, the, the ability to measure uh, risk of, of, of errors. Um, another thing interesting about predictive coding is that it's been, it's been out, out for, for a while. You know, the, the initial cases are, uh, in, the, in the US, in the US courts, where the, US, the, the courts have um, uh, allowed predictive coding to be used did back to, to, to around uh, 10 years ago, I think. Uh, in England, the first con contested hearing for the use of predictive coding in the courts, in the English courts, was uh, in 2016. Uh, my firm was involved in it, um, and it was, you know, for the first time um, allowed when when the other side was was not in agreement with it. Nonetheless, you know, the, nothing is said about it in arbitration. Um, when, of course, you know, it's the same firms who are involved in litigation and arbitration. Um, and um, and at the moment, as I said, the rules don't say if, if you know uh, if if uh, if this is allowed or not to use an algorithm to identify responsive documents. So I think it's a it's a it's a really an area to um, where you know you might want to um, to to uh, look out for further developments. Well, sure, and you know one thing that I seem to recall from maybe the past year or two is that actually sort of a, an attempt to sort of add some regulation to uh, the use of the sort of predictive um, sort of uh, AI. That is, um, you know, there, there were some private companies that were looking at uh, trying to feed in all of the opinions written by a certain judge or the publicly available um, arbitrator awards and trying to use that to sort of create these sort of optimal sort of pleadings or submissions and some state courts were saying that that was impermissible do you think that that push or that trend in trying to create that sort of software will continue that maybe it'll continue with some regulation somewhere in between do you have any thoughts on that so you're talking about um a, a, a tool that's allow a council to to prepare pleading kind of automatically i I've, i haven't i haven't heard of that tool i've heard of of, of of um, contracts uh, being um, automated, um, so I guess pleading that that would be possible too. Um, I think another, I mean, another tool that has been talked about is 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 how uh, judgments and awards could be effectively, um, you know, assembled and 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 um, and effectively. Um, I don't know how to say. Um, ordered or, or you know studied by 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 a, 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 a put on, put on a database uh, and 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 then you could use um, artificial intelligence to predict outcome for future cases that are have some common grounds with those you know pre, you know preceding decisions. Um, this I mean I I I I can't see what you know what what if what what what's wrong uh, there could be in here because you know all you're saying is that if you if you use you know uh, information that is already in the public domain and uh, you're using it to advise your clients to to predict an outcome um, I think that that's all right I think it, it's 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 a bit more complicated with arbitration because of course there's uh, much less uh, you know access to decisions. I think if you use that perhaps to to uh, influence the decision makers, arbitrators, and 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 juries in the states, maybe that that's where there's 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 more of an issue. Well, sure, 
Sure. Um, you, know, you know, leaving that for there for now, um, Claire, you, you have spoken about cybersecurity and, and international arbitration and, and the risks associated with security breaches. There are a few aspects of um, international arbitration that make uh, it a, a, a target for hackers. Um, so I think, first of all, maybe the, the nature of, of parties who, are, who get involved in those proceedings, the typical parties who are involved in arbitration um, attract, themselves will attract, you know, some of them will attract uh, uh, hackers and, 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 and data um, uh, breach, you know, risks. Um, so with, I'm talking about, you know, global um, uh, groups of companies, uh, state entities, governments, um, uh, NGOs. So that that's one that's one thing. The the, the the nature of parties who are involved in arbitral proceedings. I think also the types of disputes that are commonly um, submitted to arbitrations. Um, the, those disputes are often confidential in, in their own right. Um, they they're often sensitive. Um, they they involve issues that are you know of public interest. Um, and also, they involve quite a large sum of money. Uh, not always, but often. Another another element is is uh, I think the manner in which uh, information um, uh, is shared within the arbitral process. Um, I think I think it's fair to say that even an arbitration that is not confidential not confidential um, will always involve some communications that are highly confidential. So I'm talking about um, privileged communications, also arbitrators' deliberations. Those those kind of communication flows, they're, they're always confidential. And I think that, you know, then in a, that in itself attracts um, risks. And then lastly, perhaps less, you know, less important, but I think in arbitral proceedings involve people from several jurisdictions, work from different types of settings, and this, mean that, this means that data is shared and stored um, in, 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 in lots of different ways, uh, which again itself uh, gives uh, rise to risks. Okay, no, uh, thank you. I think that, that, was, uh, that that's all well said and certainly something that will be at the front of our community's uh, sort of uh, mindset as we try and uh, prepare for the digital world of post-COVID. Well, thank you all for those wonderful introductions and insights into your origin stories. We're going to take a quick break, and on the other side, we can hear more about this mysterious organization called the SVAMCYP, and we'll be right back after this. Hey there, listeners. As many of you may already know, the start of the VSMOOT 2021 season is just a few weeks away. For coaches, arbitrators, moodies, and mooding enthusiasts alike, it's never too early to start making plans for the 2021 pre-mooting season. So make sure to put this one on your calendar. The Asian International Arbitration Center, AIAC, is hosting an annual pre-moot competition from the 5th to the 7th of March, 2021. Now, just like the VIS, it's going to be all digital. As a supporting organization, TOT is excited and looking forward to hearing all the fantastic and compelling arguments and seeing new moodies and arbitrators joining the fray. 
Who will be this season's champion? You might just find out at the AIAC's virtual premoot. For more information or to register, email premoot at AIAC.world. Okay, so we are back, still here with the rock stars from the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center, David, Amy, and Claire. And we have some questions. You know, we've talked about, we've talked around, and we've made reference to the SVAMCY. So without further ado, let's get into it. Whichever one of you would like to start with this question, what is the SVAMCY and how was it formed? What are the common interests that brings all of you together? That's a two-parter, but the first part first, please. Hi, Stephen. Maybe maybe I'll start with the origin story. Um, so SVAMC, which is, which is the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center Young Professionals Group, um, is that Chris? I think you said earlier it's the you know the younger group. We, we're calling under forty-five still young. Um, that the Silicon Valley Arbitration Mediation Center, which is you know, the acronym is SVAMC, um, helps starts uh, back in 2017. It was actually initially started by myself and a member of our steering committee named Rajat Rana. Um, it really it really began, I mean, I think the SVAMC as, as an organization overall has really come into the fore of sort of international arbitration community in the last couple of years. Um, the institution has been around for a number of years, but I think there's been a bigger mandate uh, by the overall entity to sort of become more involved um, with the sort of arbit international arbitration, international disputes. And as part of that, you know, they were looking to have as many institutions do or centers do have a sort of junior or young practitioners or young professionals arm. And my involvement with that really originated out of a lot of work I was seeing in terms of uh, you know, disputes with semiconductors and telecoms and satellite companies. And, you know, I was really giving a lot of thought back in early 2017, late 2016 to, you know, this, the growth of this sector and how it really had a lot of the hallmarks that other sectors like energy and, and you know, natural resources and construction in terms of its transnational, you know, commercial footprint had and how it would really benefit the industry to have more of a knowledge and use of international arbitration. And I was, I was trying to start a, do a conference at Stanford Law School. And it was very helpfully put in touch with the Silicon Valley Arbitration Mediation Center and quite fortuitously was you know, introduced to Rajat, who was looking to try and build up this organization. And, you know, one thing led to another. And we, I believe we launched in October uh, of 2017. Uh, so almost almost three years, three years ago, exactly. Um, and, you know, one of our, we'll talk about the sort of common interests, but one of the things we were really focused on, you know, was having a diverse professional group of people, um, not only private practitioners like uh, Claire, Amy, and myself, but also in-house counsel, you know, as, as a fundamental part of the process, but academics, um, other, you know, technological, technology professionals, all be part of the organization to have a, a diverse sort of point of view, but also diverse sort of communications and a better understanding of the issues that are going on. And I think that's, you know, one of the biggest hallmarks that we, we, we really enjoy is having this diversity of, of views. Um, but 
So the organization, um, you know, currently consists of, of three co-chairs, which is myself, uh, Amy, and Claire. Um, we're part of an eight-member, I think it's eight, uh, eight-member steering committee. Um, and, you know, that, we, we, that steering committee, you know, is, is meant to help sort of guide the organization uh, and help produce different conferences and, and, and initiatives and things like that. Um, and much, you know, much like many other uh, international institutions, organizations, you know, we're really just trying to create a community of like-minded people um, to discuss, you know, different issues and topics. The one thing I think that also sets us apart is SVAMC as an organization administer arbitration. It's not like the ICC, the LCIA, or any, a lot of these other, it's more of, I think, of what we've called a think tank. You know, we're part of a certain industry, a certain sector, sectors within an industry, and we're sort of focusing on, on issues that arise. And also, you know, the general umbrella of technology generally, as, as Claire was talking about earlier with, with um, AI and, and um, you know, cybersecurity and things like that, which are certainly becoming more and more uh, relevant and prevalent. No, sure. I think that, that that's fair. And um, well, and I guess and we'll dig deeper on that question to the extent of, um, uh, you know, anyone who wants to, to tackle it. Um, you know, we know the origin story now, and thanks for that. What was the what is the focus of the group? You know, what initiative or events do you guys have upcoming that uh, the listeners or anyone uh, interested in getting more plugged in could uh, could, could undertake or follow? Um, so I would say the focus of our group is twofold. It's uh, talking about arbitration in the technology sector, in the uh, in the dispute resolution field, both implicating California companies, but also those companies around the world that do business um, with technology firms based in California or technology firms elsewhere in the world. So although we're based in Silicon Valley, the inquiries that we're pursuing are what does arbitration of technology disputes look like? And then also, what is the role that technology can play in arbitration? And we've had some very interesting conversations about that, including a discussion of AI and arbitration, which is an issue uh, close to both Claire and my, and my practice. Uh, if you are curious about initiatives, you want to get an introduction to the group. We host, you know, quarterly events. We have an upcoming um, call that will be happening that I'm sure Claire will speak a little bit more about. In light of everything going on with the pandemic, we just put together a virtual field note. Uh, but we're also always looking for ideas. So if you want to join up and you have an event that you want to organize or a topic that you think fits into that discourse, we'd really encourage you to reach out. Sure. No, that that's really helpful. And I and I assume people could just kind of go to the website, you know, type in the Google to the Silicon Valley Arbitration Mediation Center, and you guys will pop right up. That's right, S-C-A-M-C-Y-P.com. So, and you can, you can find us there. Also, feel free to message us on, on LinkedIn. You know, the three of us are always excited to talk about the group and answer questions, and there's a LinkedIn group for it as well. You can find us many ways. Fantastic, and I hope you realize what you've just done. You've told people to contact you on LinkedIn, so I hope you're now prepared to, to get the, the flood of LinkedIn connections from, from the show, but, but thanks for, for that information. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, always happy to answer questions from people who are interested, particularly young practitioners, given how hard this uh, this can be to break into or understand. So we are we are open door, and that's why we do what we do. All right, no. <laughs> All right, um, another question I have, um, and and I guess this one I'll leave for you, Claire. Um, since 
in-person conferences and events cannot be held at this time, this little thing called COVID. How is the SBAMCYP ensuring constant learning and exchange of views between its members? So um, we've, we've of course been involved in um, organizing events that used to take place in person, uh, but now are taking place in online. So we're still involved in those. And uh, the next one coming up is a NICC uh, YAF uh, event on actually technology disputes and the use of technology in arbitral proceedings. Um, and that's, that's at the end of the month. Um, uh, and we're sponsoring that that event. Um, so we, we're doing that. Uh, we've also, um, as Amy mentioned, we've organized a, a call for contributions to uh, a, a field node on virtual. Um, and so we, we've now received uh, contributions and we put together the note itself, which we soon going to publish um, to our members and on our website. Um, and I think in addition to that, we, we felt like probably as most of most of us in the arbitration community felt, which is that there is a lot of, of, of online content. Um, there is a lot of seminars. Um, there, there are lots of, um, of articles and, 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 and blogs, etc. Uh, but I think one of the things that people are, are missing very much is, is just pure connections. And of course, we can't do that in person yet, but uh, um, we, we were thinking uh, with the steering committee um, about a way to connect more with our members in a more informal uh, fashion. So we have decided to hold more member meetings, just simply virtual meetings. And so we have the first, our first member uh, virtual meeting coming up at the end of the month. And so they're going to hope, we, we hope to hold them on, on the monthly basis and to, to effectively just provide an opportunity for members to, to connect, to catch up, and then just learn, learn a little bit about, about somebody, about a topic. So our first uh, virtual meeting uh, will feature one, one member of our steering committee who will speak to who's, who's practicing in-house, and she will speak to us about the in-house perspective on, on the resolution of technology disputes. Uh, here's a question. Um, who can apply to be part of SVAMCYP? Is there any sort of uh, special procedure or qualifications that one must have? No. Um, so I guess the only condition is that you, one must be under 45 years old um, uh, and, uh, and just have an interest uh, in, in uh, this world of technology disputes. We, we, we are different in the sense that, as, as David said, in that we... We are. Uh, we we have members, private practitioners, but also uh, who are engaged with uh, working at uh, companies. So in in that regard, there's no there's no conditions, you know, bar admission or anything. It's just an interest in the topic and and you know practicing that area. Yeah, I would, sure, sorry, fair enough. Add, add, I would just add as, as part of our marketing effort. I mean, look, we we are still a relatively you know junior uh a new um organization and we don't we don't have variety i think because as i said svmc doesn't administer arbitrations but i think you know as claire said anybody that has an enthusiasm or or really interested in this field you know dispute resolution and 
of technology disputes or the way technology is changing the way disputes are resolved. Um, you know, and, and if they're, they meet the age requirement, you know, we, we'd be very happy to have them as members and we're trying to build it, but we're trying to build a network and, and, and um, we've had good success doing that, but you know, um, there's lots more people out there who we'd, we'd uh, more than welcome to, to join. Well, sure. I think that's a great point. And I bet, you know, there is maybe even a way that uh, this organization, especially from a young practitioner standpoint, could utilize with some of the other tech hubs um, across the world. You know, you might think of Shenzhen or Lisbon or in, uh, in, in Warsaw. You know, they all have their own little technology sorts of uh, communities that are bubbling up. So maybe there's a, an Avengers style team up you guys could do. That would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah, um, I'm well, already thinking of what, what our what our power is going to be. That so. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. We'll we'll call Marvel already. Um, but uh, thinking of uh, you know as we head here towards the end of the interview, uh, this is what we will call you know the speed round. You know the questions I'm just always curious to hear about guests. You know in terms of um, what they are reading and listening to. So we will just go and this time we're going to do you know we're going to mix the order up this time. We're going to start with. Uh, with Claire. Claire, what, what books are keeping you entertained these days? What, what are you reading? This uh, the only opportunity I have to read and, you know, actually spend time in my own language, my first language. I'm sure it's going to be of, of huge interest to the audience, but I sometimes read in English, uh, and usually those, I read in English when I read personal development books. And the last one I read, and I enjoyed very much, was uh, Daring Greatly by Renee Brown which is um, quite old, but I think he was, he was still very much on point and very, very inspiring for me. Okay. No, that, that's a good one. Well, and, and, you know, as with uh, the, the organization and these book references and music references, I'll usually include a show in the show notes with some links to these things so folks can uh, download those. Amy, what are you reading? So I've been time traveling lately back to the 1960s. <laughs> Just, okay. Um, Looking at parallels there and what's happening now. And the, the last book I read was just finished on a flight that was Played As It Lays by Joan Didion. Very interesting mm. examination of that snapshot of culture back at that time. Okay. Well, that's great. Claire, how about yourself? What are you listening to? So I listen to all kinds of music. I, I love classic, I love rock, I love blues. I also listen to children's music a lot. Uh, but recently, in the in the lockdown, I have to say I have uh, discovered and listened to uh, a group which I love and uh, a lot, and it's um, the War on Drugs, which sounds a bit dodgy for someone in my profession, <laughs> but that's that's. And uh, I also I, I also listen to um, Madeleine Peru a lot uh, over the summer. Okay, no, that's good. All right, I got some Spotify things to check out. And David, how about you? I'm afraid that I, I'm sort of just listening to a panoply of, of music right now. I mean, I've had a lot more opportunity to listen to music, not being in an office. Um, sure, yeah. I, I, the blues is always something I, I gravitate towards. So Unfortunately, I, I don't think I've got a, a particular artist to recommend. But I'll, have to, I'll have to check up on what Amy and, uh, and Claire, particularly more on drugs. <laughs> no, that, that's fair enough. I've got um, probably three or four albums I downloaded over the summer that I just hadn't gotten around to because I don't have my normal commute to kind of just jam out to them. But uh, 
they're there. I know. T I know. T Swift Tay Tay has a new album out. I got to check out eventually, along with uh, Childish Gambino. So I got to check those two out. Um, they drive around. They drive around for a little while. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or maybe just go for a long walk. Um, okay. Well, final question, and it's super difficult. Um, so I, I hope you guys are ready. You know, I got this is the gotcha moment. You know, I've saved the hardest question for last. Um, and we'll start with uh, with with you, Amy. It's 5 p.m. on a Friday, and you are somehow completely free of work, obligations, anything like that. It's no longer COVID times. You can do whatever you'd like. How are you spending your weekend? Uh, I'm sneaking downstairs to relieve our childcare early and taking my daughter to the park. Okay. No, that's fair enough. And uh, and uh, that, that, that sounds like a good start to the weekend. And all sorts of adventures could spring there from. Um, Claire, how about yourself? How, how would you spend uh, your, your ideal weekend non-COVID times? Um, so I would um, take my children and my husband and uh, take our car, uh, which is a big Jeep, and we would drive to the countryside and open up the tent uh, uh, conveniently on the top of the Jeep and uh, camp for 24 hours. Okay. No, that ain't bad. That sounds like a great weekend. Um, David, how about yourself? Um, you know, the weekend's here, no work, 5 p.m. What you do, What are you doing? That's a good question. I've been thinking about a lot lately. <laughs> uh, I, I think I, would be, I wouldn't be too far behind Claire with, with my kids and my, and my sort of Jeep and off into the countryside. Or if I was feeling a little bit more isolationist, I'd maybe hop on my bike and go for a long ride. Yeah. Okay, that ain't bad. You know, get some cardio, go see some stuff. It's a good time. You have um, those, those questions. questions. You don't get you don't get very exciting answers. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's probably fair enough, and uh, you know, we'll we'll see how the the future sort of unroll unpacks that for myself. Maybe in a couple of years, uh, I, I will have similar. I, I will sleep <laughs> or enjoy some quiet. <laughs> Would be my ideal weekend. Um, no, but I, I think those those are all fine and uh, interesting and, and fun answers. Um, wow. Well, just like with uh, the other episodes where we've had multiple guests, the time has gone extremely too fast. Um, we, we find ourselves here at the end of the episode. Um, and uh, first, I, I want to thank each of you for being here. Amy, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Claire, also appreciated having you here. It was great. Thank you, Chris. And David, thank you for being here as well. I really appreciate it all of your insights. Thank you, really uh, enjoyable uh, discussion. Well, great, and, um, and with that, I think we'll, we'll call it a wrap. Uh, do uh, David, do you wanna sign us off? Sounds good, well, I'm David Ernest from the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center's Young Professionals Group, and there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. So, that was my conversation with David, Amy, and Claire on behalf of the SVAMCYP. It was great to hear each of their stories and to hear about the different ways in which tech, data protection and privacy, diversity, and AI are all coming together to inform important conversations going on in the world of tech and dispute resolution. One of the things I've really enjoyed these past several weeks, from talking with Sophie and Federico, and then our guest today, is the different ways in which we each find ourselves in the field. 
For those of you listening, still looking for that route or your spot in the field, I hope that these conversations along with all the discussions we've had this season are proof that there are many ways into international dispute resolution and the path might present itself when you least expect it. Anyway, a few closing notes. First, shout out to Teresa Garcia Reyes, a colleague of mine who works with the SVAMCYP. Teresa, we would love to have had you on the show and join in all the fun. And we'll have to find another way to get you on the show sometime. Second, we are less than three weeks away from the kickoff of the 2021 V-Smooth season. Look, I love sports, college football especially, go Gamecocks. But I, for one, am hyped to see how this new season of the V's goes. Teams are preparing digitally all over the world, and the countdown to the spring hearings begins soon. You simply can't beat that feeling. Get your highlighters and your notepads ready, folks. It should be a fun season. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mo Better Solutions. Show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Our research assistants are Romit Kohli and Amar Singh. If you have any questions or comments for the show, drop by the LinkedIn page and send us a line. Or shoot us an email directly at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. That's it for this week. We have just one episode left in season two, and you won't want to miss it. We've got a special guest, and I'm excited to conclude the season with her. Oops, I've said too much already. I'm Chris Campbell, and there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. <laughs>